Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Personalizing Treatment in Cushing's Disease is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Are you prepared to navigate the many challenges of Cushing's disease, focusing on assessing therapeutic response, patient selection and personalized approaches, including counseling on timing and speed of recovery, as well as symptoms burden? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Maria Flesherio. And I am Dr. Irina Bankas. Irina, can you set the stage for us with some background information on Cushing's disease and the burden it puts on our patients? Yes, of course. Well, that's a lot to discuss. I would like to start by outlining that symptoms and signs of Cushing's disease result directly from chronic exposure to cortisol excess. But these symptoms and signs are very nonspecific, and there are many reasons for that. The symptoms and signs could be mild, they could be seen in many other disorders, and are in general common. For example, weight gain is a common symptom. Weight gain in Cushing's syndrome, or Cushing's disease, is especially in the abdominal area, but this is common otherwise. People complain of fatigue, complain of muscle mass loss and weakness. Women have menstrual abnormalities. There are quite a few metabolic abnormalities that happen in Cushing's disease. Development of diabetes or prediabetes, cholesterol issues, high blood pressure, osteoporosis, and fractures. Patients with Cushing disease also are at high risk for clots, DVTs, and PEs, or pulmonary embolies. Patients with Cushing's also have a high predisposition to infections, especially fungal infections. And on physical exam, we may see supraclavicular pads, dorsocervical pads, and skin changes, such as strea, easy bruising, and thinning of the skin. Thank you, Irina. So it's a complex of factors that we're looking for, including the comorbidities that you nicely mentioned earlier, to guide our selection for treatment, both for first line and furthermore for secondary adjuvant treatment. Absolutely agree. And I think it's important also to note that even in the best hands, pituitary surgery may not result in cure in around 30% of patients or so. It's also crucial to remember that surgery is not the only option for patients with Cushing disease. Maria, what can you tell us about adjuvant treatment, such as medical management, and the goals of that therapy? So adjuvant treatment consists in sometimes more than one method. So medical management has moved from one of the options we have available for these patients to being now really the mainstay of adjuvant treatment. We're so pleased that for the last 10 years, we had four drugs approved in U.S. by the FDA, starting in 2012 with amifepriston, a glucocorticoid receptor blocker approved for hyperglycemia associated with Cushing syndrome. The same year was approved pesirotide, SAP-Q, and then later on, a few years later, pesirotide LAR, somatostatin receptor ligand that works at the pituitary level, the first drug that actually works at tumor level and also decreases the ACTH. And we'll talk later about efficacy and differences between drugs. 
After that, the Ocilodros that was approved in 2020, this is an adrenal inhibitors that blocks the 11-beta-hydroxylase and also blocks the aldosterone synthetase. It's a very potent drug. And then a year later, in 2021, levocitoconazole has been approved, and this is the stereoisomer of ketoconazole. So we have many drugs approved, and then... Keep in mind that we also have several other drugs that we have been using for years, including ketoconazole, metirapone, mitotate, etomidate, carbergaline. They are off-label in U.S. Ketoconazole and metirapone are approved, for example, in Europe and other countries. So we have now a corollary of methods, even from medical point of view. Now, how to choose one versus the other? It's also a personalized decision. And Patient preference should play a role. Several of these medications are oral medications. Few are injectable. For the medications that we're using day-to-day, Ocilodostad is the most potent one we have available. Several long-term prospective studies have shown that up to 77% of patients in the most recent study have been controlled, and this one was controlling with placebo, for example. And then even longer term, up to 67% of patients could be controlled. And last week, we have published that we have patients controlled for over six years. So this is a drug that has been prospectively studied, and it's very potent, of course, and works rapidly. We have to think also about adverse events. So the most frequent adverse event was related to adrenal insufficiency. All of the potent drugs can decrease the cortisol too much, and sometimes it's not even adrenal insufficiency. I'm curious to hear from you soon about what we differentiate between adrenal insufficiency and glucocorticoid withdrawal syndrome, for example. But we have to keep in mind and how we speed up and titrate the drug is very important. For levocitoconazole, we're also starting with a lower dose and increase and titrate up. This is how we usually do for all the drugs for Cushing's. Very important, levocitoconazole has some warning for QT prolongation and liver function, so we have to closely follow up that. And then for pesirotide, for example, that works very well at the tumor level for some patients that have tumor present. We know from the beginning that even in mild Cushing's is going to respond in 50% of patients maximum. So we have to set up our expectations for control in our mind. But the hyperglycemia is also very frequent. Up to 69% of patients can develop hyperglycemia. With all the medications for Cushing's that I have described, and I focus just on the FDA approved now, we should see clinical improvement in addition to looking at numbers. So efficacy based on cortisol, as I mentioned earlier, for most drugs, with the exception of mifepristone, it should be assessed in combination with clinical improvement, clinical features, several of the one you mentioned earlier, but also comorbidities. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Maria Flesheyu, and here with me today is Dr. Irina Bankosh, and we're discussing strategies to personalize treatment for patients with Cushing's disease. Thank you, Maria. I do have a question about the use of cortisol measurements. 
in following patients for recurrent Cushing disease and also during medical therapy. For example, after a curative pituitary surgery, I would use 24-hour urine cortisol measurements in my patients with cured Cushing's to diagnose a potential recurrence. Do you use cortisol measurements in your patients treated with medical therapy? Thank you, Irina. The medical management option is even more complicated to follow than surgery, but also once the patients are closely observed, the outcomes are clearly improved. So for example, in patients that are on medical therapy, with the exception of mifepristone, I do serial urinary free cortisol and look to see if they are decreasing the speed of decrease. Sometimes I do more than one, but I also check the salivary cortisol. And there are uh, data showing that if patients are controlled both with urinary free cortisol and salivary cortisol, their clinical outcomes are actually better. So this is very interesting because in the initial studies, we all look at urinary free cortisol as endpoint. So it's a little bit hard to, to detect which one would be imp- more important. But if somebody's asking me, I would say both. We should try to really normalize the circadian rhythm. This is not always possible, but if the patient has normal urinary free cortisol and the saliva cortisol is still abnormal, um, but they have clinical improvement, so I'm not thinking of switching to another treatment, then definitely I will up-titrate the dose and I will up-titrate the evening dose to try to improve this diurnal variation. So I do urinary free cortisol in everybody. I do salivary cortisol in everybody. Again, this excludes the glucocorticoid receptor blockers where we can measure uh, cortisol. And then I use the measurement of the morning cortisol not to tell me where we are from Cushing's point of view, but just to make sure that the patients do not have adrenal insufficiency. So this goes back to the individualized treatment. What do we need to do for our patients? And... We look for recurrence. The salivary cortisol can sometimes be abnormal a year before the urinary free cortisol. So this one pattern. And then for medication, also depends on the comorbidities. Sometimes salivary cortisol could be falsely elevated for um, uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension and has been shown. So it's really important to look at numbers, but not look just as na- at numbers. The clinical pictures should play a very important role. So can you tell us a little bit more, Irina, with all these options, how do you select the right therapy for our patients? And once selected, how do you go from there? Well, that's a great question. And you actually answered or touched upon several of the things. So let me recall together with you that you've mentioned that some of our patients are just too sick to have surgery when we see them first. So one of the factor is how ready is my patient to have a curative, a potentially curative surgery? So sometimes we would wait a bit or treat with medical therapy before our patient is ready to undergo a potentially curative surgery. The other factor that I think is important to consider is availability of experienced pituitary surgeon or availability of early surgery. Sometimes in different environments, patients have to wait for months to have a curative surgery. And we would not recommend delaying treatment of Cushing's until, without anything else, until that surgery can occur. The third factor would be patient's preference. 
In my opinion, patients would need to hear about all the options available to them and participate in that individualized discussion on how they would like to approach their Cushing disease. So how do we distinguish or differentiate between different therapies? As you recall, the mainstay of Cushing's disease, as far as management, would be pituitary surgery. But sometimes it's already clear, based on the initial imaging, that pituitary surgery would not be curative, for example, with some of the more invasive pituitary tumors. In that case, we would be planning additional therapies after potential debulking therapy, such as radiation therapy that Maria mentioned earlier, and medical therapy. In times when pituitary surgery, radiation therapy, and medical therapy are not an option, we would consider also bilateral adrenalectomy in selected patients. I would like to talk a little bit more about leukocorticoid withdrawal syndrome because this occurs both after a curative surgery, let's say pituitary surgery, but also during medical therapy. What is glucocorticoid withdrawal syndrome? It's frequently confused with adrenal insufficiency because there is quite a bit of overlap in symptoms. For example, glucocorticoid withdrawal and adrenal insufficiency both present with a lot of fatigue, a lot of body aches and pain, a lot of similar exacerbation in anxiety and depression. Nausea is also a common overlapping symptom between glucocorticoid withdrawal syndrome and adrenal insufficiency. Let me define glucocorticoid withdrawal syndrome. This is a body's reaction to withdrawing from supraphysiological cortisol levels. I usually like giving an example of drinking too much coffee. If a person drinks five cups of coffee a day, it would be quite difficult to go from five cups of coffee a day to one cup of coffee a day. A person would feel unwell and tired and uh, would probably have a headache and sleep more. So if we make a parallel to cortisol, going from five, ten times abnormal, higher than normal cortisol levels to normal cortisol levels after surgery would not feel well. And unfortunately, these symptoms are very long, so at least it feels this way. They sometimes last three months, sometimes six months. And I think that the glucocorticoid withdrawal syndrome diagnosis is very hard. After surgery, sometimes we know that the decrease is very abrupt, so we expect it. But with medication, could be seen months later after, for example, we uptitrate the dose. So I think especially with potent drugs, as I mentioned earlier, as oscilodrostat, but also with levocitoconazole and pesirotide and mifepristone, we see the patients having symptoms that could be withdrawal or could be adrenal insufficiency. So in my mind, I want to make sure the patient doesn't have adrenal insufficiency. So definitely I measure a cortisol in the morning unless the patient is on mifepristone when we make the decision on clinical diagnosis. And if I think it's adrenal insufficiency, I will stop the drug for Cushing's and then decide if symptoms are not resolving to give hydrocortisone. All my patients with Cushing's have some treatment at home for adrenal insufficiency. Now, if by any chance the symptoms are resolving with decreasing the drug, we're back to square one. Is this that we uptitrate it much faster than we should? Or is this really adrenal insufficiency? And we have shown in studies, for example, for oscillodostat, that if we uptitrate much slower, like it was in link four versus link three, the rates of adrenal insufficiency were lower. 
So in my mind, this made me change a little bit of the clinical practice in I used to see a high cortisol. I would go to a higher dose because, you know, patients have been missed for so many years. I would want the patients controlled very fast. However, for a lot of patients, it would be better to slowly uptitrate so they can tolerate better. As you mentioned, I would not like to go down from five to one cup of coffee. I still like my three cup of coffees. Thank you, Maria. And it really sounds like it's art in management. <laughs> I think... Patients with Cushing's disease and Cushing's syndrome are fascinating and we should all make all the effort to really individualize therapy, as we mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Irina, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. It was always a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.